following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, February 28, 2021, on the basis of Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. WWJD? Question mark? At the risk of assuming too much, I imagine most of you don't need me to explain that those golden letters stand for the timeless question of what would Jesus do? And again, at the risk of assuming too much, I think that as Christians, we tend to understand that even if that's asked sort of half-jokingly, we understand that whatever moral fork in the road we arrive at, the answer to that question is almost always the right thing to do. I mean, even for non-Christians, Jesus is sort of the poster boy for doing the right thing. What would Jesus do? Jesus would help. Jesus would heal. Jesus would listen, and he would turn the other cheek. It's not universally applicable, of course, because Jesus would also raise the dead and flip over tables in church. So these are things we can't and shouldn't do. But there's more than that, because as Jesus' ministry on earth drew closer and closer to its end, what Jesus would do became a little unnerving to his followers. And maybe it's unnerving to us too, because what would Jesus do? Jesus would also suffer. Jesus would face rejection. Jesus would take up his cross and die. And what maybe is, is the most scary part of this is that Jesus would call us to do the same thing. And we read that for today in this gospel. And it's scary because what we want out of Jesus is not struggle or suffering. We want happiness. We want joy. We want success, I guess. And so as sinners, our first instinct following Jesus is to backseat drive for him or to maybe do the old tuck and roll when he takes a turn down a path that we personally wouldn't have gone down. But in our gospel for today, Jesus tells anybody who would follow him that the path to heaven leads straight through a world that hates him. And yet he calls us to follow him because he wants his destination to be ours as well. Now you may know that Peter, the Apostle Peter, was the boldest of the apostles. In, in every gospel that records our gospel for today, what immediately precedes it is Jesus pointing this question of his identity, a very high-pressure question at his disciples of who he is. And Peter is the first to pipe up. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, he wasn't saying anything that any of the other disciples wouldn't have already said, but Peter said it first. And so Jesus calls him blessed. Sometimes bravery had its rewards. But more often than not, it got Peter into, into trouble because even though Peter was, had absolute confidence that Jesus was the Messiah, he and the other disciples were confidently ignorant of what that word Messiah truly meant. And we know this because just moments later, maybe a day later, Jesus the Messiah begins to teach all his followers that the Messiah would suffer, that he would face rejection and cross, and that he would die. Well, that doesn't line up with Peter's idea of Messiah one bit. And so boldness bubbles up again, and he goes boldly forth to take the Son of God aside and shush him. No, Lord, no, this, was, this will never happen to you, Lord. It's, it's not, it couldn't happen to you, so stop saying it. You're scaring people. 
few years back on a mountainside far away, Satan and Jesus stood side by side. And Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, saying it could all be yours if you would just bow down and worship me. Last week, we heard Mark's sort of condensed version of that story. And it's interesting because in this moment that we read for today, Peter sounds just like Satan, and he doesn't even know it. Satan was offering Jesus popularity and prestige in order to, in order to lure him away from the cross. And, and now, Peter is trying to keep Jesus away from the cross so that he can keep up his popularity and prestige. The difference between them is that Satan knew exactly what Messiah had come to do and what he would do. And Peter didn't have the good sense to sweet talk him the way Satan did. He just yelled at him. And so I don't know what went through Jesus's mind at that exact moment. But Mark goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus turned around and saw his disciples. He looked right at them. Because Peter had spoken for them before. He did it when he said that you are the Messiah. And I think Jesus maybe could tell on the look, by the looks on their faces that Peter was also speaking for them now. And so just as Jesus had given Peter all the credit, calling him blessed before, now he gives Peter the business in the strongest terms possible. Get behind me, Satan. Fall back in line, Peter. You're not concerned with anything that God has in mind. You're only worried about what sounds good to you right now. And we don't want to see ourselves in Peter there, but sometimes that's what happens. Nobody begins their walk of faith with a mature spirit. There are things that we miss, things that we resist, and things that we don't necessarily appreciate right away about the word of God. An immature faith is, is certainly still faith, but it's still infected with that old sinful nature and it wrestles, struggles against it as hard as it can. And often, it still loses. It's this kind of immature faith that wants to see Jesus as the first among equals, sort of, or, or, or your most responsible buddy, a democratic leader of sorts who has to listen to your voice. But we cringe at the thought of giving Jesus total control. And of course, Jesus' predictions were frightening. But as he said, not only did they have to happen, or not only would they happen, but they were necessary. Necessary for nothing else other than our salvation. And so on the path to heaven, we can't let ourselves backseat drive for the only guy who knows the way. But just in case Peter's fears were right, just in case Jesus was scaring away anybody in the crowd, Jesus calls them all together, huddling tight, not so that he could pad his words, not so that he could back off on anything that he said, but so that he could strengthen them, so that he could take all the, the hardships that he had promised about himself and say that you're going to have to deal with this too, so that there could be no mistake that where Jesus was going, either his journey or his destination, those who followed him would also go there too. Anyone who wants to come after me, he says, must deny himself and pick up his cross. Now, that's two things, self-denial and cross-bearing. Self-denial is what happens when a believer takes a moment to set aside what they think they want out of this life. It means refusing to feed the greed or the lust or the addiction or the laziness or any of those other temporary instant gratifications that our God has called sin. What it doesn't mean is scrapping every goal you've ever formulated for yourself 
or abandoning every relationship you've ever built. It doesn't mean that, but here's the harder truth. It means that none of those things come to us at the expense of our faith. That's self-denial. And then there's cross-bearing. We kind of have the luxury of hindsight 2,000 years later of hearing Jesus say, pick up your cross and make that connection to say, ah, yes, Jesus would die on a cross for my sins. We kind of mentally separate the glory of the cross from the reality of crucifixion. We hang them around our necks and we put them on our walls, but we don't truly appreciate what that means because the disciples hear cross and they see a very real cross, a very real crucifixion. Not, one, not, not a death that, that happens by mob justice like they thought might have happened to Jesus, but a death that Jesus is promising with the full power of the Roman government looming behind it and a cross that didn't have the glory of Christ associated with it yet. The American cross, I think, is a little different. I don't think any of us are are in fear of losing our lives for our faith over here. And so maybe our cross is not the bulky, burdensome thing that Jesus' disciples knew that they would carry. Maybe it's small and surgically sharp, full of splinters that jab us constantly. And that's Satan's strategy. Instead of piling on persecution or making us fearful, fearful for our lives, what he'll do over here instead is, is in place of hardship, he'll put glittering lights on sin. He'll spice it up and, and put it in front of us on a golden platter and say, have at it, buddy. And we know that we can't. Instead of, instead of making us choose between our faith and our life, like many of the disciples would have to do, Satan makes us choose between a life of faith and a faithless life. And, with us, and as people with sinful natures, that's going to sting a lot. And when we put those two things together, cross-bearing and self-denial, we see that they're just two sides of the same coin. Cross-bearing is the natural result. It's the natural fruit of self-denial. Because, it, because saying no to the sins that we love also means saying no when somebody invites us to come and indulge in those sins with them. People who aren't following Jesus aren't always going to get that. They don't understand necessarily all the time why why you would say no to something that feels good in the moment. And maybe that means they stop inviting you to do those things. Maybe that means that, well, they cut you off altogether. And maybe that's our cross to bear. But it's not our cross to bear alone. I mean, just within these walls, we have a community of Christian cross-bearers. Outside these walls, we have a world full of Christian cross-bearers. But most importantly, we have a Savior who bore our cross first. Jesus had a singular goal, and it wasn't to live a life of luxury. His goal was to save you and to suffer every indignity and every injustice and every discomfort that the job required. Think of the, the lengths that he went to, because the Son of God, who had no sinful nature to reject, who had no sinful impulses to deny, still denied himself and took up his cross for us. He set aside the glory of God and all the respect it demanded to come and live in the gutter with us and die on a cross for us. And so when a Christian looks at the, that cross where his friend and his Savior died, they realize that grace is not something cheaply given. That the price of reconciliation with God was the sacrifice of his own son. 
And so if we look upon that cross and consider it a small thing to just cash in our sins in exchange for forgiveness and walk away and go back to the life that we immediately back to the life that we came from, then the fact is that we're not following Jesus. We're following ourselves, pursuing whatever momentary brief happiness we think we need above all, trying to win over the world or at least our own cozy little slice of it. And to that, Jesus asks, what good does it do for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And it's a scary question, but there's more gospel hidden in that question than than you might realize because if we go back to that scene with Satan and Jesus, Satan did offer Jesus the whole world. He offered all the kingdoms to him. And if Jesus had taken him up on that offer, he wouldn't have forfeited his soul. He would have forfeited ours. But he didn't. Because God so loves the world that he didn't want to be our king for just one lifetime. He wanted us to be with him forever. And so he took up his cross. He left Satan. He took up his cross and he died for us so that his destination can be our destination, so that once we get to the end of those hardships, we can find that door open wide. And as we listen to Jesus' list of his sufferings again, if we listen to what he, what he had predicted, we see suffering, we see rejection, we see death. But I left something out. Maybe you noticed. And I left it out on purpose because clearly Peter didn't catch it the first time. If, Jesus, or if Peter could have just listened through Jesus' suffering, rejection, and death, he would have heard one more item, resurrection. And Jesus stressed that because if the people in the crowd, and Peter included, were concerned that their, that their great Messiah, their promised leader, their wonderful Lord was going to die before he could fulfill his task, he wanted them to know that his death would not be the end of his life. And so if Christ calls us to follow him with our crosses, if he calls us to share in his sufferings and, his, and in his rejections and maybe even in a death like his, then we can be sure of the promise that we will share in a resurrection like his. And that begins here in the waters of baptism. St. Paul writes to the Romans, whoever has been baptized into Christ Jesus has been baptized into his death. And so there it is. Baptism is, as our theme for the season says, a time to die, a time to put to death the greed and the lust and the laziness and all those other sins that Jesus took to the grave for us. And it's also, therefore, a time for us to come alive, just as Jesus did. Paul continues, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's a promise given by the God who never breaks his promises. And yet, in what seems like another frightening statement, Jesus actually advances that promise when he says, whoever seeks to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's another gospel paradox that only our God can make happen. And I think you guys know that Jesus isn't asking us to leave here and charge headfirst into our graves. The early, the early church actually had to struggle a lot to correct that misconception. But in a sinful world, dying to sin means giving up the life that you would have lived so that you can live the one that Jesus is leading you through and so that you can le- live the one that Jesus is leading you to. And so Jesus stands beside us and in front of us, calling to all Christians, do not cling 
to your sin at the cost of your salvation. Do not cling to your friends at the cost of your faith. Do not deny me for the sake of your bank account or your business or your popularity. Do not fight for one more breath at the cost of your eternal life because, beloved, I clung to you at the cost of my life. And that destination that he's won for us makes every hardship worth it. The question has never been, what should Jesus do, no matter how many good suggestions Peter thought he was full of. The question is, what would Jesus do? And the answer to that question is not always going to be a comfortable one. But it's those uncomfortable roads that Jesus walked down that won our salvation. And so we bravely follow him down those roads because after suffering, after rejection, and after death, there is the promise of resurrection and there is life. Amen. Amen.